an opportunity with affirmation. The elders have recommended him to you, and now we have the opportunity for the membership to affirm what uh, the elders have placed before you. So we're excited about that. Is anyone else excited? Am I the only one? Okay, good. I got to thank you while we were worshiping. This is the first pastoral position that we have hired since I came. So that's been, someone help me, almost nine years in January. So unbelievable. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Well, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and as you make your way to Romans chapter 5, I want to just right out of the suits this morning have you stand as we read our passage together in Romans 5 verses 12 to 14. I remind you that this is God's holy word, it is authoritative, it is infallible, it is inerrant in the original autographs, and it is written for the benefit of God's people. Verse 12, therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are eager as always to open your word, to read it, to meditate upon it, to study it, to, um, to be changed, to be transformed today as we come together as your people. We thank you for this lengthy study in the book of Romans. And I ask that you would continue to do a a sovereign work in the life of this church family and also individually in the lives of moms and dads and uh, boys and girls, all for the great namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would approach this passage with an attitude of sober-mindedness. I pray that we would approach this passage with uh, eager hearts, with hearts that are ready to be molded, not hearts that react to the truth of God's Word, but hearts that are ready to obey it. And so, Lord, we ask for a special time now that your Holy Spirit would apply the truth of this passage to our hearts and our minds today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is The Sin Virus Part 2. And the sin virus, as you remember, has wreaked havoc in the cosmos and will continue to destroy anyone and anything in its path all the way to the point of when Christ returns for his people. Last week, we began our journey in this section of Scripture, verses 12 to 14, by focusing our attention exclusively in verse 12, and we referred to verse 12 as the trajectory of the sin virus. May I remind you that John Frame said this about sin, sin is a radical disruption of the core of our being. In sin, we turn from God's good commandments, His kingdom and glory and faith and love. It embraces rebellious disobedience, the kingdom of Satan, and evil attitudes. The great pastor from Wales, they called him the doctor, one of the most influential preachers in my life, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about sin. Sin is an attitude of rebellion and hatred to God and a refusal to obey His holy law. Sin means that a new reigning principle has come into the life of man. It means that we are in a fallen condition, that we are depraved and guilty, that our habits and our practices are governed or controlled by this reigning principle. Sin, as John Piper has wisely said, is failing to be satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. I want you to hear that and and let it sink in. Let it soak in like a sponge. That sin is failing to be satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. Or make it personal. Every time you commit a sin, I would challenge you to do this. To say, the sin I just committed reminds me that I have failed to find my satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. The trajectory of sin, as we discovered last week, has three very important elements. We learned in verse 12 that sin begins, how? With one man. His name's Adam. We learn that sin came, as you, if you look at verse 12, sin, just as sin came into the world through one man, that word came is a word that comes from the Greek that means to invade. It means to enter the ranks. So, so sin, when Adam committed that sin, it, it invaded not only his life, but it invaded the cosmos. Everything changed at that point. That's exactly what sin did in Adam's life, and that's exactly what sin does for every single person. No one can escape its grasp. Every time a baby is born, that baby is inflicted with sin. One of my favorite Puritan writers, Thomas Watson, lists several ways that sin brings us low. I can just, in my mind's eye, I can see in this little book he wrote entitled The Mischief of Sin, the the broad heading, Sin Brings Us Low. And he says this, Sin brings man low in God's esteem. Watson says that sin brings man low in his intellectual parts. Now what does that mean? He goes on to say this, that sin, since the fall, the lamp of reason burns dim. Have you figured that one out in our culture? That the lamp of reason burns dim. I remember when I candidated, I stood behind this pulpit, and Ethan, I remember you were the, you're a young man now, but nine years ago, you're just a little scrapper, right? And I remember this, I made this statement. I remember Jason and Tanya, your mom, told me this, this, this story. I said, I quoted Steve Lawson. Steve Lawson said, sin makes us stupid. And Jason and Tony, do you remember what Ethan said? He leaned over, I think it was to mom, and said, did he just call us stupid? (laughs) said, I didn't, but Steve Lawson did. But guess what, Ethan? I agree with him. Sin makes us stupid. Our rationality was affected. Our reason was affected. Why? It was owing to sin. Watson continues, he said that sin brings man low in affliction. He says, sin is the Trojan horse out of which a whole troop of afflictions come. Have you experienced that? 
You have been afflicted because of your sin nature. You have been afflicted because of your neighbor's sin nature. Every time your neighbor mows his or her lawn at 10 o'clock in the evening, you think to yourself, Pastor Day was right. Thomas Watson was right. It has affected humanity. Watson says, sin brings man low in spiritual plagues, that sin brings a man low in temptation, that sin brings a man low in despair. He went on to say this, despair is a God-affronting sin. It is sacrilege. It robs God of his crown jewels, his goodness, and his truth. How Satan triumphs to see the honor of God's attributes laid in the dust by despair. Despair casts away the anchor of hope and then the soul must sink. That's what happens all because of sin. And so sin begins with one man, namely Adam. Secondly, death came as a result of sin. The sin we saw last week is is spiritual death and physical death and eternal death. And then finally in verse 12, we learn that death spread, how? It spread to all men because all sinned. We put it like this, that the death sentence of sin affects each and every person, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman. For all those without Christ then, the noose is around your neck. For all those without Christ, guess what? The axe, think about the days of the French Revolution. The axe is about to fall. The guillotine is about to fall. If you are a prisoner to sin, if you are enshackled by sin, you need to know this, that if you are without Christ, you will be swept away into eternal judgment where you will pay the price for your sin by enduring the almighty wrath of God forever and ever and ever. How long is that? I, I, can't even, I can't even comprehend that. I can't even, it doesn't even make sense in my mind. You know the little symbol that you learn about as a grade school student or maybe a junior high school student, the, the infinity, the eternal symbol. That's how long we will endure the wrath of God if we refuse to turn from our sin. And so this is the trajectory of the sin virus. But we move to verses 13 and 14. There's more to learn in these verses. I want to move from the trajectory of the sin virus to the trauma of the sin virus. And as we look at the trauma of the sin virus in verses 13 and 14, I want you to, to look with me at two broad headings. And you'll need to pay extra close attention today because as we look at these two broad headings, we're going to see multiple layers underneath those headings. Here's the first broad heading. That is that death is a universal dilemma. You put it this in the popular language. Death's a big problem. It's a big problem. Verse 13, Paul says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Paul the Apostle wants us to understand that even before the law, when I think of, or when he refers to the law, he's referring to what? To the Mosaic law. That even before the Mosaic law, before the commandments that God gave his people, the sin virus had, had infected the world. 
Think about it like this with me. From the point of the time that Adam sinned, there was this period of time from Adam's sin until the giving of the law through God's man, Moses. And so Paul wants us to understand that even before that law was given, the sin virus had still infected the world. John MacArthur helps us here. He says, men's failure to meet the standards of the law was not imputed against them because during that period, they had no law. That's exactly what verse 13 tells us. The word imputed is a word you should be familiar with by now. It means to be responsible or at fault, to be charged with a financial payment. And here's what I want you to understand this morning. It's, it's super important, and that is this, that death is not negotiable. You know, we have a president, and it, I, I don't care what you think about that president. You love him or the opposite. But one thing, I think I mentioned this last week, is he's a president who loves to make deals. He wrote the book, The Art of the Deal. We all know about it. But there's, this is an instance when you can't make a deal. When it comes to death, there, is, there are no negotiations. As you stand next to a casket, you realize as you're staring death in the face, there are no negotiations with this enemy of death. There is a man by the name of Dave Asprey. Most of you probably never heard of him. I've been intrigued with some of his theories and some of the things that he has written about in recent days. And this is going to all make sense for some of you. Uh, Jason, you'll find special interest in this. Is Some of you ask me, like, where in the world do you get all your energy? Like, you know, some of you know I wake up at 4.30, and this morning I got in five and a half miles before coming to church, right? Like, Energizer Bunny, like, where do you get that energy? Like, that's crazy. Well, here's the answer. I'd love to say it was discipline. I'd love to say it was motivation. The answer is bulletproof coffee. Bulletproof coffee, you say, our pastor's flipped his lid. What in the world is that? Bulletproof coffee has three ingredients. Black coffee, grass-fed butter, not even joking, two, at least, depends what kind of mood I'm in, at least two tablespoons, and a tablespoon of medium-chain triglyceride oil. Right, Chad and Chesa? That's my breakfast every morning. That's 330 calories. I put it in a blender, and then I drink it to the glory of God. It's wonderful. And it is filled with energy, and that's, that's what gets me going in the morning. That's the recipe that Dave Asprey invented. I remember reading in one of his books, and he's essentially an author that writes about health and wellness, and this is what Dave Asprey says. He is trying to, to essentially hack his body to bring him to the place where he can live 180 years. Okay, let me say that again. He wants to hack his body to where he can bring himself to the point where he can live 180 years. Oh, there's a, there's a response. Like, that's a little bit different than my response when I read that. I thought to myself, that's just nuts. Who's going to live 180 years? Well, the Silicon Valley entrepreneur, Dave Asprey, 
has spent over $300,000 on research in the hopes of, quote-unquote, optimizing his body. And he literally says, the goal is to die when I want. I'm planning, Asprey says, to hit at least 180 years. And what he fails to realize is that his life and the life of every person alive is in the hands of a sovereign God. Optimize your body all you want. Drink bulletproof coffee all you want. You will die. You can try to hide from it. You can try to evade it. But every person will face death. And that's the point here I want to drive home, that that death is a universal dilemma. A second major heading I want you to see, and this is where we'll spend the, the rest of our time that emerges in verse 14, is that history reveals that death reigns over all. Look at verse 14 quickly. Yet death, Paul says, reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who was to come. A little background on this verse. It was the Jews, in particular, who struggled with the notion that sin existed apart from the law. They're thinking about this gap. So Adam eats, he plunges humanity into sin, and then he waits for years and years and years and years for Moses to come. Adam and Eve were dead and gone at that point. And so the Jews struggle with the idea that sin existed apart from the law. Even though the law wasn't given until Moses, Paul tells us this, that death reigned over all. This is exactly what he's trying to establish in verse 14. He reveals that sin was indeed in the world, afflicting the world, plaguing the world before the giving of the law. And the result is this, that death reigns over all. Now here's where we need to pay close attention as we look at the second heading, that sin reigns over all. I want to make three very important observations, and this is a, a, a really a, an important time for me as your pastor to teach you about the doctrine of sin. For some of you, this will be review. For many of you, this will be brand new. So let me make three observations about this monster of sin and the death that reigns over all. First of all, I want you to look with me at the effects of the fall. What are the effects of the fall? And there's really three effects I want to have you pay close attention to. The first effect of the fall is guilt. The first effect of the fall is guilt. We need to recognize that every sinner, that's every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, young and old alike, every sinner is in league with Adam. That is to say, each one of us are on Adam's team. John Frame says it like this, the pre-Mosaic peoples, that is, the people that lived prior to the giving of the law, did not sin in the garden by eating the forbidden fruit as Adam did, 
But, and this is key, they sinned in Adam and are judged in Adam. You see the distinction? So guilt is the first effect of the fall. The second effect, I would have you hold your finger in Romans 5 and go back once again, like we did last week, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This is after Adam plunged humanity into sin. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you'll, you shall eat all of it in the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Those of you that have been to our house know that we have this fence, and then behind the fence is this green belt, and then a little creek, and then just acres and acres of land, and it's, it's beautiful until the weeds begin to grow up, and my wife will tell me from time to time, honey, you can take care of the weeds behind the fence. Well, one day, my wife went to the store, and I was in the back doing the weeds, and pulling weeds, and spraying, and kicking dust, and all this kind of stuff, and I, I was starting to get frustrated. Have you ever done that? You just got mad at Adam? You're like, thanks a lot, you jerk. I know you're not supposed to say that, but you're all thinking it. Thanks a lot, you jerk, for leaving all these weeds for me to deal with. And it happens year after year after year. Well, that's one of the the painful results of the curse. And so the punishment is spelled out in this passage that includes enmity between man and Satan, pain and childbirth and toil and labor. And what's the ultimate punishment? We saw it last week. The ultimate punishment is death. The first effect of the fall is guilt. The second is punishment. The third effect of the fall is corruption, which describes the moral character of Adam and all of his descendants. Who are we? Who are we apart from grace who are we apart from Christ and the word of God spells it out in crystal clear terms the word of God tells us that we have depraved hearts right on the heels of the fall Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 the Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Will you say that with me? Only evil continually. Do you believe that? 
If you don't believe it, just go home and read your newspaper. Log on to the internet. Look and see what's happening as I've addressed this a few times over the last couple of months in major cities around America, from Seattle to Portland to L.A. to Phoenix to Baltimore to Chicago to Orlando to Louisville. We see that the hearts of men are depraved. We also see from Ephesians chapter 2 that evil people are dead in their trespasses and sins. David says, I was sinful from birth. When he was conceived, he was conceived as a sinful being. The Word of God says that we are unable to do anything good in the sight of God apart from grace. Look over with me to the book of Titus. Book of Titus chapter 1, and this passage was a a passage that just really struck me even as I reviewed it last night. Titus chapter 1 verse 15, if you're not quite convinced, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. If you're in Romans chapter 5, if you flip over one book to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and this is one of the landmark passages that describes the heart of a sinful person. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 that says, the natural person, that is to say the unconverted person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. These are the three effects of the fall, guilt and punishment and corruption. But I want to move to the second subcategory and have you see this with me. I want you to look with me briefly at the extent of the fall. This doctrine is often referred to, the doctrine under consideration this morning, the doctrine of total depravity. You've heard of that doctrine. If you have heard of the doctrine of total depravity, I would submit this to you and encourage you to consider a a, a synonymous label, and I think it's a better label, actually. It's the doctrine of total inability. Because over the years in pastoral ministry, I have met people who will give lip service to the doctrine of total depravity, and they will be quick to say, I believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then I'll say this, follow-up question, do you believe that every sinner is totally incapable of obeying God apart from grace? Oh, no, no, I don't believe that. But I believe all creatures are sinful just not totally incapable. And those of you who are students of church history need to know this, that is the lie of Pelagius. Pelagius was the 4th century heretic who didn't believe that we were born as sinners, who didn't believe that grace was necessary. We need to recognize that we are totally incapacitated. The doctrine of total inability And I think what I want to do this morning is to show you how some some of the historical catechisms and creeds address this doctrine of total inability. We begin in 1561 with the Belgic Confession. It's a great confession. It says this, We believe 
that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind, which is a corruption of the whole nature. Everyone got that? Not 50% of the nature, not 90% of the nature, as many evangelicals, again, will give lip service to the doctrine of total depravity, but they want to leave that, that little notch in their belt for free will, right? And actually, with many evangelicals I've spoken to over the years, it's more than one notch. It's a bunch of notches. And I have, I have heard over the last 29 years, this is the mantra, this is the response I've heard more often than any other response. What about free will? You've heard me address this before. And my response has been the same over the years. The response goes something like this. What about it? What about it? Because we are totally Unable. We are totally incapacitated. As the Belgic Confession says, we have been corrupted. The whole nature is corrupted and a hereditary disease wherewith even infants in their mother's womb are infected and which man produces all sorts of sin, being in him as a root thereof and therefore is so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn all mankind. That's the Belgic Confession. Not too many years later in, in London, the Puritans got together and they wrote over a series of years and it was finished in 1647, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the statement reads as follows, by this sin, they fell from their original righteousness, that is Adam and Eve, and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. The confession continues. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. Now, in a church of this size, even though our numbers are down because of the virus this morning, there is generally someone in a Baptist church who says, why are you reading from the Westminster Confession of Faith? That's a Presbyterian document. So notice what C.H. Spurgeon, the greatest Baptist preacher who ever lived, wrote in 1855. Question, wherein consists the sinfulness of that state wherein to man fell? Answer, the sinfulness of that state wherein man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of the whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. So the Puritans write the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1647, and the Baptists, not to be outdone, I'm just joking. In 1689, wrote the Baptist Confession of Faith using the Westminster Confession of Faith as the model. And if you held the Westminster Standards and the Baptist Confession of Faith side by side, you would see, wow, there are a ton of similarities. In fact, there's a lot of places, in fact, most of the places where they basically took verbatim right from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Case in point, 
Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and the parts of soul and body. This is the extent of the fall. And the reason I prayed this morning that we would be sober-minded is because this subject matter requires us to be sober-minded. This is the bad news. The third category I want you to see this morning is that there is ultimate accountability. Ultimate accountability. One preacher says it was not because of men's sinful acts. This refers back to verse 13. It's not because of their sinful acts in breaking the Mosaic law, which they did not yet have. We've looked at that. But because of their sinful nature that all men from Adam until Moses were subject to death. That responds in in clear terms to the Jewish argument that says something like this. How can a, a person be guilty of sin if the law hadn't been offered yet? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, sin is still sin, but it is not regarded or counted as transgression as, as it were in the books until the law had been clearly given. History, therefore, reveals, as we learned earlier, that death reigns over all. It is true that no one after Adam had access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nor did Adam and Eve, since what did God do to them? They were, they were booted out of the Garden of Eden, east of Eden. When Adam broke the commandment of God, we too, as Ray Steadman once wrote, broke the command in Adam. We sinned in Adam and we die because of him. Close quote. Therefore, we stand in solidarity with Adam. We stand in solidarity with Adam. We are on Adam's team, as it were. In regard to the principle of this so-called human solidarity, Adam was a type, as verse 14 says, and we'll look more into this in the verses that follow in the weeks to come. Adam was a type of Jesus Christ, and that truth becomes Paul's transition point or his pivot point to the glorious gospel of salvation from sin and death that God offers fallen humanity through his beloved son. Notice verse 14, who was to come? Do you see that there? That yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So we have seen the, number one, the trajectory of the sin virus in verse 12, that sin begins with one man, it's invaded, it's come, death has come as a result of sin, and death has spread to all men because all sinned. But then we've also seen the, the trauma of the sin virus, that death is this universal dilemma, that death reigns over all. Here's the big verse, Ezekiel. Chapter 18, verse 4, the soul who sins shall help me. The soul who sins shall prosper. The soul who sins shall die. 
we will begin, Lord willing, in November to once again offer Veritas classes. And one of the classes that we're going to offer is a class on evangelism. My good friend Daryl is the one that just kind of put, Daryl, you put the bug in my ear. You did it a couple of times, and I'm, I'm so appreciative for it, like evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. When's the class on evangelism? Now it's coming, right? Do you know one of the greatest things you can do in evangelism is tell your unbelieving neighbor, your unbelieving friend, your unbelieving spouse, your unbelieving son, your unbelieving daughter, whoever it is, if they're unbelieving, one of the greatest and most powerful things you can tell them is this. The soul who sins shall die. You see, the people in our world need to understand that they are under a death sentence. They need to understand that the noose is around their neck. They need to understand that the guillotine is about to fall. We've learned that each of us stand in solidarity with Adam, and as a result, we die because of him. In the weeks to come, we will learn that there is only one vaccine those of you following the virus thing. There, I said it. The virus thing. Wasn't that nice? You know this about the virus thing, that there are a number of companies in America and around the world working on a vaccine. Word has it that we may get a vaccine shortly. Various companies all around the world but we need to remember this. When it comes to the sin virus, there's only one vaccine. There's only one vaccine, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the only cure. That's the only vaccine. Why? Because the Lord Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. There's a verse in 1 John chapter 3, and I think I'd read 1 John, I don't know, maybe dozens of times, all the way up to the point of, I was probably about 20 years of age, and for some reason, I'd never, I'd never really seen or paid attention to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that says this, the reason that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. Amen? The Lord Jesus Christ came to, to give his people abundant life. The Lord Jesus Christ came to bring hope to the hopeless. Once again, read the newspaper, watch the news, log onto the internet, go into downtown Bellingham. For crying out loud, walk Main Street in Everson and watch the looks on people's faces. People are hopeless. And the thing of it is, they've always been hopeless but COVID-19 has kind of upped the ante. It's raised the awareness. Racial relations in America have, have upped the ante. They've raised the awareness. Looting and rioting around American cities have, have raised the awareness that all along as an unregenerate person, I'm hopeless. The Lord Jesus Christ came to set the prisoner free. He came to forgive sinners and give them eternal life. And so the question today is, do, do you know the Savior? It's a great joy of mine, as hard as it is, to officiate at a funeral or a, a graveside service. It's, it's gut-wrenching. 
right? But it's also my great pleasure when I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the person in that casket or in that urn is now in heaven. What a pleasure. What a delight. And yes, we grieve. And yesterday, we, we all grieved together as we remembered the life and legacy of our, our friend, Esther Nyans. But we know this. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is not one sliver of doubt in my mind that Esther trusted Christ. And right now, Esther trusts the Lord Jesus Christ, her Savior. And so the question this morning is, have you trusted the Savior? Another way of asking this question is, have you obeyed the Savior? Because to trust Jesus is to obey Jesus. There is no category in the Christian life to believe in Jesus but refuse to obey Him. Jesus is Lord. Some of you remember the the great controversy that erupted in the mid-80s when John MacArthur wrote his now famous book, The Gospel According to Jesus, and the essential essence, the, the thesis of that book is Jesus is Lord. Why in the world that became controversial is beyond me, and it's still to this day controversial. People say this, John MacArthur says that you have to believe that Jesus is Lord. Duh! This is what MacArthur says. This is what I say. This is what the Word of God says. If you claim to trust Jesus and refuse to submit to His Lordship, you are not a Christian. People say, well, that's legalistic. It has nothing to do with legalism. It has to do with authority. Jesus is Lord. So have you trusted Him? Are you obeying Him? And the big question is this. Do you stand in solidarity with the Lord Jesus Christ? For as John 3 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And now, as the people of God, may let us, let us bow before the majesty of our gracious God. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this amazing uh, passage, this sobering passage. Thank you for the hope that is within it as we learn about Adam who was a type of the one who is to come, pointing forward to the ministry, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a life that we could never live and he died a death that each one of us deserved to die. So thank you for the hope that is held out for us in the gospel. Thank you for the peace that we can know as we embrace the gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as I, I, I can smell the aroma of these flowers beneath, beneath the pulpit, we remember about the life and the legacy of our Our dear friend, uh, Esther Nyans, we thank you for her life, the life that she lived consistently before her Savior. And we celebrate it now and pray, God, that that would be an inspiration for someone today who perhaps does not possess faith in Christ. And for those who do trust Christ, may her life 
be an inspiration that we would go all the way to the finish line, trusting Jesus, obeying Jesus, and clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.